Welcome to Grace and 30 on WERALP, Arlington, 96.7 FM. This is Ed Mellick, and I'm joined by my co-host, Sal Dietry. Sal, what have we got cooking tonight? Ed, tonight we're talking about religious freedom. And, and did you know that religious practice contributes $2.1 trillion to the U.S. economy, and yet religious freedom is under attack here in the U.S. and all across the world? We're joined tonight by Tom Farr, president of the Religious Freedom Institute. He also chairs Georgetown University's Religious Freedom Research Project. He joins us at a time when religious freedom and really civil discussion are at an all-time low. Uh, amazingly, 84% of the world's population have some form of belief. They believe in some type of religion. And yet, most of these folks are living under terrible, terrible persecution in their countries. And some of that right here in the U.S. Tom's going to share with us some stories of success going on around the world and his thoughts on how to begin a civil discussion. Tom, welcome to Grace in 30. Pleasure to be here with you. Look, I, I've, I've heard people say that it's, it's really in the best interest of the world and even folks in the Muslim world of ensuring religious freedom and that things like Christianity flourish there. You talked to us when we prepped for the show about some of the work that people, uh, folks like Rebecca Shaw are doing around the world to improve religious freedom. Can you comment on some of that for us? Sure, I'd be glad to. I, I think the, the point about Muslims, particularly in the Middle East, is a, is a tough one because uh, one of the things we talk about is why would Muslims want to retain Christianity and, and uh, Christians as a minority in the Middle East. Uh, there are a couple of answers to that, and I'll get back to, to Rebecca Shaw, but the the, the first answer is it's it's the right thing to do. These people have been there for a couple of thousand years, most of them, these Christians. They've contributed, they've made uh, contributions all, I mean, think about that, two millennia. They've made contributions socially, politically, economically. So there's that moral point, and I think a lot of Muslims, perhaps more than uh, than our listeners might think, understand that. But there are other more practical reasons, and ones that I think really bring this point home. Societies don't work without religious freedom. Societies don't work without pluralism. If you chase all the Christians and other tiny minorities uh, out of the Middle East, you have destroyed the possibility for stability, and you have destroyed the possibility for the kinds of things that everybody wants. And it really doesn't make any difference whether you're a Muslim or Christian or a Jew or an atheist. You like to live in a society that has security, where there are jobs, where there's a possibility of economic development. And if you are religious, you'd like to live in a society where you can practice your religion, both privately and publicly. Uh, you can't get there without religious freedom. And so what we've done with the Religious Freedom Institute, including Rebecca Shaw and other scholars that work with us, is to demonstrate this through scholarship. Some of it, I think, is common sense. Rebecca Shaw, in particular, works with, uh, she's an economist, and she works with the Dalits in India. Now, for those who don't know who the Dalits are, in English we tend to speak of them as the untouchables in India, the, the lowest of the low, almost subhuman. This is ironically a, an, an old and, for the most part, uh, in our vocabulary, outdated but it's not outdated category in India. These people still exist, and to give them religious freedom is to give them agency for themselves, 
particularly the women. And Rebecca Shaw has done a great deal of uh, work on this, and you can go to our website and see some of this. What happens is when people can convert to whatever religion they believe they're being called to, whether it's Islam, there's a huge Muslim majority in India, uh, there are Christians in India, there are other religions, um, these people become much greater contributors to their own society. They not only feel better about themselves, they're no longer untouchables, they're no longer the, 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 uh, the lowest of the low, the subhumans. They're human beings, equal to everybody else, but they're also impelled to be economically productive, she has found in her studies. So there is one example of the link between religious freedom and economic development. So the bottom line is societies work better, I think this is common sense, but we uh, we spent a lot of time both at Georgetown and in our new Religious Freedom Institute proving that so that we can go to others who are skeptical and say, hey, take a look at this. You want your society to work. You c- it won't work without religious freedom. And you've even cited work where, you know, Buddhists and Hindus will start creating these organizations to work with the poor. This is almost like a not a competition, but in a way when religious freedom is allowed to flourish, there are more religious institutions and they feel more compelled to sort of, you know, as Pope Francis would say, smell the sheep, to get out and work among those others to uh, to evangelize in a way. Absolutely. I mean, it's, uh, you know, one thinks of Mother Teresa whenever you say in, uh, India, who was probably uh, the greatest missionary of the 20th century maybe John Paul Pope John Paul the Great was uh, was in that competition too but uh, if you asked Mother Teresa now Saint Teresa of Calcutta do you proselytize do you convert she said no I do God's work and people uh, see what I'm doing and they come to the Catholic faith because of that if you multiply that into larger organizations uh, it, it really, again, it's common sense, but we see it in particular countries. And a, probably the best example of this is Indonesia, which is the largest Muslim country in the world. There are two huge civil society organizations that are motivated by Islam. Uh, think of them as sort of an Islamic Knights of Columbus. If you're, if you're familiar with the Knights of Columbus, it's the largest lay Catholic civil society organization or one of the largest in the world. And it does good works. It does good works not just to convert people to Catholicism, but because these Catholics believe we are called to do this for others because we, you know, because we're Catholic. Uh, sure, if they want to they look at what we're doing, fine. Well, this happens in Indonesia, where you have these huge 90, 100 million groups uh, of people. That's a very large country which are doing this kind of thing. So what that does, not only is it good for Islam, and is it good for the poor citizens of Indonesia that they help, but it also has the impact, and here we come to the American model, it limits the authority or the the power of government, which is really one of the major first steps toward democracy, if you think about it. If you have private groups that are doing things like providing education, uh, religious groups that are providing soup kitchens or homes for orphans or, or immigration and naturalization services, taking care of the immigrant. If Ask yourself, who does this if these private 
including faith-based organizations, don't do it, well, the government has to do it. And if government does it, that means an extension of the power of government, which is really, over the long term, not good for democracy. So religious freedom helps uh, with democracy, it helps with economic development, it helps with the poor, and uh, as Rebecca Shaw and others have, have shown in our work, it strengthens the religion itself, because what you have, in effect, and here I'll, I'll cite the work of uh, Robert Woodbury, another one of the scholars that works with us. He has discovered, he, he focuses on Protestant groups around the world. Where these Protestants are allowed to do what Protestant evangelical groups do, which is uh, help the poor, teach them how to read. Why do you, I'm going to make a little joke here as a Catholic, okay? The little joke is we Catholics don't have to read the Bible, right? The Catholics that are listening to this will hopefully chuckle at that. Uh, <laughs> Protestants have to read the Bible because that's the authority. They don't have the Pope. They don't have the magisterium. So you can't really be a good Protestant if you can't read the Bible. And so where you have Protestants out there in sub-Saharan Africa, for example, or the Pentecostals in, in South America, you have people who are, who are learning to read when they couldn't read before, because they can't be good Christians without it. So <clears throat> all of this comes back to religious freedom, and it, it comes back to these civil society organizations, non-governmental organizations, that are teaching people, not just their own groups, not just Muslims teaching other Muslims or helping other Muslims or Christians the same, but religious people doing what they do best, motivated by their own religious motives. That's a powerful, powerful motive for any human being to have, let alone a group of human beings who agree yeah, on what we ought to be doing. That's great. Let's, speaking of a good evangelical, Ed, jump in here. I know you've got a couple <laughs> questions for Tom. And, and, you know, some of this gets to the heart of, you know, when I think of these things, I think of places like Iraq and Iran. I think of, like, the Saddam Hussein regime, the brutalities, yeah. and, and how do you even get started in that? And, Ed, you've done some looking at this, and, and actually you've read some of Tom's works leading up to the show. Jump in. Yeah, the question I had is, how do you convince the skeptics that mm. uh, this helps them achieve their goals? I mean, right. what, what sort of work do you do to that end? That is, I mean, that is the question, Ed, because if I might say, one of the, one of the things our own government does in order to try to get people to adopt religious freedom is to put them on lists and call them bad guys. They are. I mean, it's the truth, and we have a list we call the countries of particular concern. It's where you really have the bad, horrible persecution going on. But putting them on that list doesn't change the structures of persecution. In some cases, it makes it even worse. And to impose sanctions, it's another thing probably we ought to do more than we do, but we have to do it very carefully, because you're not going to change, this goes to your question, Ed, is you're not going to change the behavior of the skeptics, of the people who think you just want them to, to adhere to your standards, when in fact they have their own interests. So that's what we try to do, the Religious Freedom Institute. Give a country, take a country, wherever it is. Iraq is a, is, a, is a tough one now because it's in such turmoil, but you can really go, let's take Egypt, which is very close to Iraq. It's a Muslim-majority country, a Sunni, uh, uh, even though Iraq is primarily Shiite. Uh, there are lots of Sunnis in Iraq as well. How do you, what's their interest? You begin with that question. Well, do they want jobs? Do they want economic development? 
Yeah, most countries in the world want that. There are one or two exceptions. North Korea, which is run by a maniac, may be an example of, of an exception that proves the rule. Virtually every country in the world wants its people, its citizens, to be able to have jobs, to have work. Religious freedom can help with that. Uh, do you, are you trying for democracy? Are you trying for self-governance, stable democracy? Egypt falls into that category. Uh, Iraq does. Pakistan does. In a sense, Russia does. That's a little bit more complicated. But religious freedom can help with stable democracy. So, again, you're asking, what do they want? What are their interests? Do they want their religion to be healthier, to be less generator of violence than it is? Religious freedom can help there. Again, it's common sense. But where you have religious freedom, you're less liable to have violent religious extremism. Think of Osama bin Laden in Saudi Arabia and the terrorists that were mainly Saudis who hit us on 9-11. Ask yourself, if all, there were 19 hijackers, I think 15 were Saudis. Suppose all 15 of those, including bin Laden, had been raised in a Saudi Arabia, not the one today that is a basically a theocracy where there's only one form of Islam, but where there is religious freedom, many different voices of Islam, plus Christianity, Hinduism, and all the rest. Would al-Qaeda have come out of Saudi Arabia? Probably not. 9-11 may not have happened had Saudi Arabia had religious freedom. Why? Because bin Laden and these other creeps who hit us would have understood that there are different ways of doing my own religion. I don't have to kill people. I don't have to attack the United States. So how do you start, Ed? You figure out what do they want? How do they define their interests? Not how do we change them, but how can we come alongside them and let them see that religious freedom is good for them? Look, Tom, this is obviously a deep passion of yours, and it's not an easy subject. It it, it can be an uphill slog that can take a long time. One of the things we do on this show is ask listeners to stop and think about their higher purpose. What are we really called to do in in this life? And you're a wonderful example of someone who you know, has had a career in the Army at State Department and has come to this, through your faith, this purpose of religious freedom. Tell us some of the things that, you know, sort of defining moments that moved you in this direction and what, what got you into the place you are today. Well, at the risk of, uh, of uh, you know, <laughs> when you talk about religion, there's always somebody that, that, uh, that may uh, not be offended, but be taken aback a little bit. But in my case... Uh, it was our family's, the first thing was our family's conversion to Catholicism. We were raised uh, as Methodists in the south of the United States, and it was fairly late in, in our lives. Uh, our three daughters and, and, and my wife and I came during the mid-90s while we were working in the State Department, and we discovered a doctrine on religious freedom that is pretty good. It's called Dignitatis Humanae, and that's the real answer to your question. Dignitatis humani means the dignity of the human person. I became convinced, not only because of my conversion to Catholicism, but because of my growing awareness of the suffering that was uh, building after the fall of the Soviet Union, somewhat ironic that the Soviet Union had kept a lid on some of these persecutory policies. But once the Soviet Union was gone, 
it just seemed as if Pandora's box had been opened. We began to see religious persecution. I witnessed some of it. I, ex- I experienced some of it when I was in the State Department working in the Office of Religious Freedom. There was an Iranian family that ha- were born as Muslims, but they had converted to a Pentecostal form of Christianity by hearing the Bible translated into Farsi. It was being read to them. And when it became known that this family, uh, mother and father, some kids and a sister or two, had converted, it was almost like a death sentence. So they fled. There were about eight of them. They got to Turkey. They were interviewed by the UN group that's, that does this for refugees. And that group decided that they weren't Christians because they asked them what the synoptic gospels were. And they didn't know what the, inter- the, the questioner was talking about. So here are some Pentecostal Christians, not that Pentecostal Christians are any worse or better than any others, but this particular group didn't know what the synoptic gospels were. So my point here is, I learned from that, that Western governments don't get religion. If you want to ask and find out if somebody is a Christian, you have to have a little bit more than a textbook understanding of the structure of the scriptures. You need to understand what it means to be a Christian in the language and in the in the rites and, and rituals of the group involved. These people didn't, and they were about to be sent back to their deaths by the United Nations until our office got involved. And the long story short, it, it worked out well, but we had to really fight for this. And I learned that this was important to do because of all, you know, we've been citing statistics, the 84%, the 75% of people that are suffering. There are faces behind those statistics. And in my view, the way to resolve this problem, the way to address it, of course we have to feed the hungry. We have to provide the shelter, and we have to help people who, without that physical help, will die without it. But what we do in the Religious Freedom Institute is try to get in front of the problem, go to the root causes, so that when we get people out of jail from China, which we do from time to time, we've done a good thing, but the Chinese will simply bring another group in. We aren't. It's like trying to empty the ocean with an eyedropper simply to react to persecution. You want to help the problem, get in front of it, and make self-interest arguments to the persecutors, that if they stop doing what they are doing, they're going to help themselves, their societies, their religions, and that's, that's why I'm doing what I'm doing. In some, I'm a Catholic, I believe in what my church teaches, which is every human being has dignity, deserves religious freedom, and moreover, I think we can do it if we change our methods a bit, and that's why I'm in the business I'm in. So let's spend a little bit of time talking about the critical relationship between religious freedom and national security. Yeah. I mean, why is this important to us in the United States? It's important to us in the United States, uh, and there's disagreement over this, but I believe violent Islamic extremism and terrorism is a mortal threat to our country because there are people out there, and this is not a matter of whether ISIS has been defeated yet in Iraq. It's an idea. It's an ideology. It's not just ISIS, it's al-Qaeda, it's Boko Haram, it's al-Nusra, it's the certain elements of the Muslim Brotherhood, not all of them. These people would destroy us if they could, if they had the means to do so. And they proved that on 
So what we need to do is undermine that ideology. And there are plenty of Muslims that want to do this. That's the good news around the world. So we have another one of our scholars, uh, Nile uh, uh, Saya is his name, S-I. You can go to our website and find this work, S-I-L-J-A-H. He's at the University, uh, New York University, State University of New York. And he is, he's a, an empirical sociologist who has basically demonstrated by statistical analysis that where you have religious freedom, you're not going to have violent religious extremism. And that if you can promote religious freedom, you can undermine violent uh, Islamic terrorism and other forms of terrorism wherever it exists. That's something that our government ought to be doing, and it's something that I'm pressing it to do. So let me restate it. Religious freedom is an anti-terrorism measure. It's cheaper than bombs. It requires, hopefully, no blood on the part of our young men and women. It's not a military policy. It's a diplomatic policy. We haven't even tried it, but we should be. So you can go to our website and see uh, recommendations to the Trump administration, which I personally presented uh, briefly to the, to the candidate before he was elected. We also pre- presented it to the other, the Democratic candidate as well. But after this president was elected, we presented it to the National Security Col- uh, Council. You can download it. You can see uh, what our, our, uh, the, the uh, scholarship that I've just mentioned. You can also see how we're telling the United States government that you can implement this within our diplomacy. It's hard, but it's not expensive. It requires training. It requires a little bit of different thinking. But our diplomats, and this is what I spent 21 years of of my career doing, can advance this, not because they're religious. This isn't advancing Christianity. It's not harming Islam. It's helping Islam. It's advancing religious freedom for everybody. Think of it as full equality under the law for all religious groups and all religious individuals within a society. If we could do that, we would help our own national security, because we would undermine the ideology of the people that really want to destroy us. And this information is available at at your website, religiousfreedominstitute.org. Is that That correct? That is correct. Look, we've got about, uh, oh, I'd say about five or six minutes left. I'd like to shift to to this country right here in the United States, where religious freedom is is also under attack. There's an article I was reading in First Things in the March edition by Daniel Philpott. He says, Pope Francis is referring to this now as polite persecution. Right. As if you don't see this, maybe you maybe you won't get the job, maybe you won't be accepted in the workplace. And this isn't something just for Christians. I, I know that uh, you know many high-tech companies have a foosball table and a game room, but don't have a a simple, quiet meditation or prayer room or reflection room or anything for people wherever they are in their belief. And and as we talked before, you said people, you know, it's hard to be an atheist. People are somewhere in the journey looking to the afterlife. Tell, tell us a little bit about uh, what's going on here in the United States and how we can sort of start breaking into this here in the U.S. Okay. Uh, it's a great question, and thank you for it. Let me first say that Daniel Philpott, whom you mentioned, 
uh, is one of our scholars as well. He's at the University of Notre Dame, one of the finest scholars in the United States on this issue. Uh, and uh, you can find some of, a lot of Dan's stuff on that same web, website. This First Things article that you're talking about is quoting the Pope, polite persecution. You're quite right. Um, I said it's hard to be an atheist. It's hard to come to certainty that there's nothing out there. Uh, there are people uh, that do this, but uh, I think the group that I would really like to address in, in, discuss, in answering your question is the so-called nuns, not, not Catholic nuns, but N-O-N-E-S, which is the phrase that is developed among scholars for young people, the millennials and others, uh, the younger people in the United States and in Western Europe, who uh, say when they're asked in, in polls and surveys, you know, what what do you, what church do you belong to, what religion do you belong to? Their answer is none. Uh, but it doesn't mean they're not religious. Some significant proportion of these these young people, there's probably 15, 20 percent of them in the United States. A good portion of that 15 or 20 percent say, I believe in God or I believe in Christianity, I'm just not attached to a, I'm not an Episcopalian or a Catholic or a Jew or a whatever. They do believe, but they believe without belonging to an institution. That sounds a lot like probably a lot of the millennials, if any are listening to this, or those who, who know millennials. I, I have three, three daughters and ten grandchildren. I know a lot of them. So I get this. They are religious in this sense, just like the most devout Baptist or Catholic or Jew or Muslim that are listening to this radio program, they're religious in the following sense. Because they're human, they want to know the answers to the religious questions. You can't help it. It's in your DNA. At some point in your life, you ask yourself, what am I, why am I here? I mean, is there any purpose for me being here? And is there something other than me that is responsible for my being here, something greater than human, something transcendent. And if there is, it's a person or a thing, it makes sense for me to want to know more about it. In other words, that's a rational pursuit. Most people get into that pursuit, which is religion, the search for a greater than human source of being and ultimate meaning. All of us do it. The atheists come out on one end and the agnostics on another. But those millennials that, that may be listening to this, or those who want to talk to millennials, they have this same yearning. And the fact that they're not going to this church or that is not the point here. They ought to understand that the United States has been, until very recently, the greatest country in the world in protecting religious freedom. I know we're running out of time, so I'm going to get to the point. Our founders, and for the last roughly 200 years, have believed that this is the first freedom, not only of our Constitution, it's the first of the Bill of Rights, but the first freedom of the human soul. If you don't have religious freedom, you aren't living a fully human life. If you can't believe as you want to believe, James Madison said this is your first duty beyond all others. James Madison wrote our First Amendment and much of our Constitution. Today, that is going away. I'll cite one example, and I'll stop. The Civil Rights Commission, which is a venerable institution in our society, issued a report last year that said religious freedom is a front for bigots. It's a front for bigotry. People who defend religious freedom are defending hatred and Christian supremacy and Islamophobia and, and a war against women. 
that's a long way from saying that every human being in our country needs religious freedom. So my plea is for people to pay attention to this. There are a lot of people in our society who believe that religious freedom is somehow wrong, that we need to get rid of it. This would be very, very dangerous for America. If it's lost here, where else in the world can it be regained? The stakes are very, very high, and it's not a left-right issue. Every one of us should come together to defend religious freedom in America, and especially you young people. Wonderful, wonderful. Yeah, look, Ed and I, you know, have an idea for maybe a series where we start having some civil discussions, and we we work through that, maybe having folks from different sides of the issue on and to start having these kind of civil discussions again, and, and would love to get your input to that as we work through that. Look, we've got to, we've got to run. Uh, thanks so much for joining us, Tom. If listeners want to find out more, you can visit the website, religiousfreedominstitute.org. We'll also be posting information, videos to our website and Twitter and Facebook pages. Ed, talk us out of this one. This is Ed Sal signing off from Grayson 30 on WERALP Arlington 96.7 FM. Have a great night, and be sure to tune into Grace.